Hello and welcome back to the Do Theology podcast. My name is Jeremy. Thanks for joining me today. The first episode that I'm recording in the year 2024. And in this episode, I'll be responding to Gavin Ortland, who recently came out as a local flood believer as opposed to a global flood believer. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. First, I want to say I like Gavin a lot. I think Gavin is a sincere, humble brother. I wish I had more of his personality when I watch him talk or listen to him talk. Um, I think, man, just the way he goes about things and presents himself is really good, and I wish I was more that way. So big, big props to him for being able to put out his content in a way that is um, very humble and considerate and I think just overall sincere. He talks a lot about theological triage in his ministry. His ministry, by the way, is Truth Unites. You can find that on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts, I'm sure. Um, But he talks a lot about theological triage, discerning the difference between primary doctrines and non-primary doctrines, which, as you know, if you're a regular listener of our podcast, we do a lot of. Our chart is all about that subject, which you can find at dotheology.com slash chart. And uh, Gavin got into that a bit last year in his debate with Trent Horn, the Roman Catholic apologist. I released a response video to that when that came out, critiquing Gavin just a touch, but mostly, you know, applauding, saying, hey, this is really good. Way to go, Gavin. And so all that to say, lots of stuff we would agree on, and uh, and I'm thankful for him. And we'd agree on this, too, being not a gospel issue. Um, and we would agree on this being secondary, I think. Okay. He definitely would put it in the secondary column. I am struggling just a, a tad with it. And uh, we'll get into the details about that as we go along. But But if you're familiar with our chart, we do put the age of the earth in the secondary column. Now, if you believe in evolution, that becomes a a primary issue. If you believe that God used evolution to make man and that there was death before the fall, now we've elevated that issue. But if you believe that the earth is old, um, that God created all things and then later on down the road created Adam after those things had existed for some time, you could believe in an old earth and still affirm that Adam was the first human being, that Adam was the first uh, one who sinned, that death came through that that Adam's fall. You could affirm all of that and believe in an old earth, okay? It's not a view I take. I think it's crazy to try to do that, but it's secondary. When it comes to this issue of the flood and whether or not the flood was global or local, there's just a lot of interesting stuff that is wrapped up into that. Uh, So here's what we mean by global and local. If you believe that the flood of Genesis 6 through 9 was a global flood, you believe that God sent waters to cover the face of the entirety of the earth in the literal sense, and that all flesh was killed because of that flood, uh, except for Noah's family and the animals that were spared on the ark and the sea creatures that didn't have to be on the ark, okay? So that's what a global flood view is. If you take the local view, you believe that 
the flood was less than global, that the flood happened, but that it was less than global. At the beginning of uh, Gavin's video, he said, that doesn't mean you believe it was a small flood. It was still a big, massive flood that covered you know, millions of square miles or whatever. We're, but we're not sure how big, if you take that view, it, but we know it wasn't global. Okay, that's kind of, if you're in that camp, that's what you would say. Gavin seems to be agnostic whether or not he believes all people died on the face of the earth. He, he cited Hugh Ross as someone who believes in a localized flood, but also believes that all people on the face of the earth died during that time. Okay, so that's kind of interesting, but Gavin didn't seem to take a view one way or the other, at least at the start of the video. And one of the things he also said toward the start of the video is that scientific evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of a more localized flood rather than a global flood. So I have to say from the start, I believe that for Gavin and for anybody who takes a more localized view of the flood rather than a global view, science really is a driver here. Now, I don't think Gavin would like me phrasing it that way, but it's clear as he explains himself that scientific reasoning and just pure human logic really does play a role in his view change from having this global flood view to now a more localized view of the flood. Okay, so what are his two reasons? What are the two main reasons as to why he's changed his view? Here, I'll give you the two and then we'll just dive into them a little more deeply. The first reason why is because the term the whole earth in the original Hebrew that is found in Genesis doesn't always mean literally the whole earth. There are times when the term the whole earth will refer to less than the whole earth based on its context. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is for Gavin and others, it's hard to accept that God would have done this, the, the global flood, since the Bible doesn't explain how that happened. Mainly talking about on this point, how all the animals of the entire earth were saved on this one ark. Okay. The Bible doesn't say how, so we must think of other miracles that the Bible doesn't talk about in order to account for a true global flood. All right, those are his two reasons. So let's explore them uh, more deeply here. Reason number one, that the term the whole earth doesn't always mean the whole earth in the Bible. So let's go to um, the Bible. <laughs> let's go to Genesis chapter eight, and it's verse nine where we get this phrase, the whole earth. It says in uh, verse six of Genesis eight, it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. That's the key phrase. Here we are at the end of the flood. Well, the, not the end, but the uh, rain had stopped anyway. And the birds go out and don't have a place 
to land because the water was over the surface of all the earth. So the phrase all the earth doesn't always mean literally all the earth. And a passage that he uses as an example, and there are multiple that he uses as an example, but one that he uses as an example is later on in Genesis. Genesis 41, verse 57, where it says, The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the, the famine was severe in all the earth. So here it is twice. The people of all the earth came to Egypt because they could buy grain from Joseph there. And this was because the famine was severe in all the earth. So he's asking the question, basically, when he brings this up, uh, were there people in Central America who, as he says in the video, uh, beat Columbus to the punch and were able to cross the Atlantic and go over to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because there was a famine in Central America? Is that what it's communicating there? And he argues, no, that the context there, even though it's the same phrase as Genesis uh, 8, the, the, uh, for all the earth, the context there shows that all the earth doesn't mean literally all the earth. And so it's possible in Genesis 8, same author, same language, same book, it's possible that in Genesis 8, all the earth doesn't mean all the earth there. And he gives other examples. He, he quotes some other authors who kind of listed these examples out. And he says, look, context is what qualifies these things. Context is what uh, determines if all the earth means all the earth. And so um, here's a little bit in his uh, own words. I want to play a clip. It's a one minute clip. Let's go back here and do this. And uh, listen to how he how he explains this, and then I'll walk through it. Yeah, if I could just make an appeal for humility in how we read the Bible, we're reading an English translation with a modern understanding of planet Earth as a round globe orbiting the Sun between Venus and Mars. So when we hear certain language, you know, we're going to bring a lot to the table in terms of how we interpret that language. The biblical writers and the original readers were not aware of the South Pole or Alaska or New Zealand. So they would have absolutely no reason to use language that would reflect entities that they didn't know existed. They were just using the ordinary language of the time to refer to the known world. And that's completely natural for people back then to speak like that. When we say all the earth, we just mean all the earth we've ever known, you know? And so our task in reading the scripture is to submit to what the original author meant and how the original hearers received the text. That is where meaning is furnished. And actually, all right, I'll stop right there. Um, I love what he said there. So when it comes to hermeneutics, I completely agree. The meaning of the text is found in what the original author meant and how his original audience would have understood what he was saying, because of course, authors write to an audience. And so they take into account what their audience would understand from what they're writing. I think this has amazing implications for uh, Ortland's understanding of say Israel and the future restoration of Israel because he is reformed and uh, does not believe as dispensationalists do in a future restoration of national ethnic Israel. So um, that's 
it's just an interesting point, you know, where it's like, okay, the meaning of a text is furnished in the original author's intention. Totally agree. He's using that to say that means Moses was trying to communicate to us that the flood that Noah experienced was local, which I think is a bit crazy. Uh, whereas I would say this has a lot of implications for a lot of things, not just the flood. Um, it's just interesting how we have the same idea in mind, but we go very different directions with it. Well, um, he says, yeah, so you, you'll go back to what the original authors were saying. And when they say all the earth, they didn't know about a whole bunch of places on the earth. And so all the earth to them meant something that was more localized as we now look back at those events with all the knowledge that we have. And one of the arguments he makes is when you go to Genesis chapter 10 and you read about the table of nations and all the nations that come from Noah's sons, that the table of nations doesn't extend to Mexico or to Australia. That table of nations and the peoples that come from his family are all in that Middle East general vicinity. So he says, look, when you get to the table of nations that talks about what happens with Noah's sons, that is localized. Therefore, the context of all the earth here from Genesis 6 through Genesis 10, it's all localized. All the earth doesn't literally mean all the earth. Genesis 6 is limited by Genesis 10, or more specifically, I guess for him, Genesis 7 is limited by Genesis 10. All right, so let me respond to that. Um, I don't believe that we should go to Genesis 10 and see the nations that came from Noah's sons, see where they ended up, and then go back a few chapters and say that's the extent of the flood. I don't think that's the way we should do that. That's at least not how I'm going to do that. But instead, what I would like to do is see this phrase, all the earth, how it's used in Genesis up to chapter 7 or chapter 8, where it's talking about the, the flood covering all the earth and get a sense in which the context is laid before the flood. So that way we can understand what is meant by that term, all the earth. All right. So let's uh, now go to the Bible again in Genesis chapter one. And I think this is a great place to start for many, a theological conversation. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 31. This phrase, all the earth, is going to come up in verses 26 and 29. So listen for that phrase, all the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was good, very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All right. So two places here where we see all the earth come up. One is over uh, the, or concerning rather, the animals over which man is to have dominion. Man is to have dominion over, it says in verse 26, over the birds of the sky, the cattle, and over all the earth. So man is to have dominion over all the earth. I think there it's clear that this means all the earth. Man isn't to have dominion over a section of the earth, and then this other area, uh, some other creature will have dominion. That's not the case. Man is the only creature made in the image of God. Man is the only creature on the face of the earth that has been called to have dominion over all the earth. Those two concepts are linked. Man has been made in the image of God, and man has been commissioned to have dominion over all the earth. And then it comes up again in verse 29, where God says that he's given to man every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. That doesn't mean that you can eat of plants from everywhere except for Mississippi, right? It means all the earth. There's no limit limiting factor on that. It's, it's all the earth. Anywhere that Adam could go, he was able to eat the plants that God made, except for, of course, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there you go. To me, those two usages point to all the earth, meaning all the earth. Same book, same author, same language, Hebrew. I think it points to that. Another interesting place as we get to the flood, another interesting place where this phrase, all the earth comes up, is in Genesis chapter 7. Um, when he's talking about the animals coming onto the ark, he says, you know, you're to take two of the unclean, seven of the clean, male and female, and he says you're to bring them on the ark to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. The offspring of these animals were to remain on the face of the earth, they were to be kept alive on the face of all the earth. If this was a localized flood, why would that be important? Why would that be necessary for animals' offspring to be kept alive on the face of all the earth? Why couldn't the other animals from other places just survive and eventually migrate their way back to the place where the flood was after the waters rescinded? Why couldn't that be the case, uh, the other animals that weren't drowned in the flood? What's the significance of chapter 7, verse 3, if it's not about all the earth literally? I think that's a valid question. But let's consider, as we approach chapter 7, the reason why God flooded all the earth and see if there's any hint in the reasoning to the context or the, the breadth of how far this flood would extend. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, 
The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. To me, this is a very difficult passage to limit. All flesh in which is the breath of life, all flesh under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now, again, Gavin Ortland and others who believe in a local flood, they're going to make the case that the, those phrases don't always mean literally what they say. However, it's really hard to imagine that God is saying, hey, Noah, over all of the earth that you know and all the people that you know, everybody is really evil, and so I'm going to kill them with the flood. But the people you don't know who are still born in sin, who are still totally depraved, who are still worshiping themselves and are still rejecting their creator, et cetera, et cetera, they're not corrupt enough for me to kill them. But these ones in your area are. <laughs> to me, that's where you have to go with this. And that seems really difficult to try to explain away. To me, the, the context is clear. God is saying to Noah, all the earth is corrupt. The entirety of the earth has gone astray. It's really, really bad. We're starting over with your family. If you read through Genesis 6, that's what it's saying. It just is. But let's keep going because there's also an indication of this after the flood. Again, talking about the context of this all the earth phrase, when we look at before the flood leading up to the rainwaters, when we look at after the flood, after the waters rescinded, are there indications of what all was affected? Was it local? Was it global? I think Genesis 9, after the flood, again, another passage that indicates what's going on. It says, God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It really seems like God is going out of his way to emphasize and repeat that this covenant has to do with the flood that covered the entirety of the globe. 
that touched all the surface of all the earth and killed every living creature of all the earth except the living creatures that were in the ark. Um, again, I mean, Gavin and others will make the argument just because it says all and every, you know, etc. That doesn't mean literally all and every, but that's a lot like, and, and, you know, pardon the comparison, but it's a lot like whenever I'm talking to a Latter-day Saint, as many of you know, I'm out here in Utah, I engage with Latter-day Saints all the time. When I'm talking to one of them and it's so clear in scripture when God says there is no other God, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, is there another God? I know not of one. Uh, he, he's just so clear that he is the only God. And you, you confront a Mormon about this and you say, look at what the Bible says about this. And they say, yeah, but that kind of language is like hyperbolic language that's used in the Bible. And it doesn't mean that there's literally no other God, but what it means is that you should treat God as the only God for you, that sort of thing. And you say, if God wanted to communicate that he is the only God, how would he do it? (laughs) You know, I'm kind of feeling that way with the flood. It's like, if God wanted to communicate here that all of the earth, literally all of the earth was destroyed by floodwaters, and that he made a covenant literally with all of the earth that he would never again do such a thing, how would he have said it? To me, he would have said it just like this. He would have presented it just like this. Now, of course, I'm biased because I already have my views, but I can't think of the alternative. I can't think of a way that that God could have done this in any other way. Um, When he says that he'll never destroy all flesh again in this way by floodwaters, What does a local flood guy like Gavin make of the reality that there have been some massive floods, some tsunamis that have killed a lot of people in a localized area? Would that violate this covenant since this covenant was based on the local flood? That's the kind of stuff to me that is unanswerable. I mean, you cannot provide a legitimate retort to that from Scripture. And it it makes it really, really difficult to uh, say that this view of a localized flood is legitimate. But we could also go to the New Testament. It's not just the Old Testament and the immediate context of Genesis. I want to show you three verses, or not verses, three passages from the New Testament that get to this point also. Uh, Jesus talked about Noah, and he said in Matthew chapter 24, talking about his second coming, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, there's a verse that's gotten some people in hot water in recent history, but different subject for a different day. Verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Classic rapture passage, it's an open and shut case, pre-tribulational rapture, done. (laughs) Just kidding. Those two verses there, verses 40 and 41, are not about the rapture. All right, again, different topic for a different day. Let's hone in on the end of verse 39 here 
when he says the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah and the flood, when they were all just having a good time and then the flood came and took them all away. What, what are the parallels that Jesus wants us to see here? Does he want us to see just that people will be surprised? Or does he want us to see that the unbelievers will be surprised and also it'll be comprehensive just like it was in the days of Noah? I think it's both. He doesn't there limit the flood in any way. Now, the way a local flood person could get around this is by saying, well, that wasn't his point. His point wasn't to talk about the extent. The point is to talk about just the fact that they're surprised. I think it's a both and. I really do. I think it's both things, not just one or the other. Uh, that, that Jesus is talking about a comprehensive judgment of the entire world at his coming. A local flood guy like Gavin will believe that that's going to happen. Jesus is going to return. He'll have a comprehensive judgment of the earth. But he's not going to say that that passage teaches that because he can't because he believes in a local flood, not a true global flood. Another passage is Luke 17. Again, we have Jesus talking. It says, starting in verse 26, Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, here's what I think is really interesting about this. Notice he, when he's talking about Noah here, he says, the flood came and destroyed them all, talking about all of those outside of Noah's family. And he leaves it at that. There's no limiting factor. Once again, the flood came and destroyed them all, he says. But when he talks about Lot, he says specifically that when Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Well, there, all is limited to all who were in Sodom. That's what he had in view. Lot went out from Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone on Sodom from heaven, and it destroyed them all. It doesn't say here, Jesus doesn't say that it was really, really bad in Noah's area until Noah you know, got on the ark and God flooded Noah's region. There were Greek words for that. I mean, that is, could have been what Jesus said, but he didn't. He didn't limit it. He limited Lot right after Noah by pointing out it was Sodom he was talking about, but he didn't point out it was just Noah's local region. And to me, that's very, it's not like the strongest evidence in the world at all, but it is some evidence where it's like, okay, that's interesting. Jesus didn't feel the need to limit what happened during Noah's time as he felt the need to do so with what happened during Lot's time. Just something to consider. One more. This is 2 Peter chapter 2. Of course, Peter talks about Noah in 1 Peter 3. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, interesting term, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, this isn't like, 
okay, here's the golden bullet open and shut case. We're done. But at the same time, twice in second Peter two, five, does Peter say that this flood happened to the world? It happened to the world. So as these passages stack up, it gets harder and harder to try to come up with excuses as to why world doesn't mean world, why every or all doesn't mean every or all. Okay. So there's his, there's my response to his first retort. His first retort being that the whole earth, the term the whole earth doesn't always mean the whole earth. Well, yeah, but I think the context points to whole earth means whole earth in this case. Now his second retort, his second reason as to why the the flood should be seen as local rather than global is that basically it's hard to accept that God would have flooded the entirety of the global earth since the Bible doesn't say how he, his point in this is that the Bible doesn't tell us how it all worked with the ark and the logistics of all that. So we have to conjure miracles outside of the biblical text to explain it. And he says, look, you've got all these unique frogs in the Americas. How did they get on Noah's ark? And you could get into a conversation now about Pangea and how all that worked, but we're not going to. Okay. But so consider that, uh, you've got koala bears and polar bears. You've got desert animals and Arctic animals, penguins. How did they all get on the boat? Noah's boat, huge boat. How did they all get there from all these vastly different regions and then survive as they have different needs on this ark for all that time, hundreds of days? How did they all fit into the ark? What are the logistics of feeding them, getting fresh water to those needing fresh water? Uh, what do you make of the fact that there are some uh, shallow water type animals uh, like, or I don't know if you call them animals, but creatures like a starfish. Uh, Gavin says you would basically need aquariums to care for certain animals that live in brackish type water or shallow water. How did all of that work? And he says, inserting these additional miracles will make the global flood a very unnatural reading. That's his argument is that as you think through all of that and consider how all that could possibly work, when you go back and read the text, now the idea of a global flood becomes unnatural as a reading and the local flood becomes much more natural. So again, as I said earlier, this is human science, human reasoning being inserted into the equation to govern what God did. All right. Now, again, he wouldn't phrase it that way. He wouldn't like the fact that I phrase it that way, but he says basically that very thing in different words. All right. So he acknowledges that there are young earth creationists out there that have explanations to this. He references John Whitcomb and Henry Morris and Ken Ham a lot, answers in Genesis, etc. though he's, he admits he's never been to the Ark Museum in Kentucky. I think if he would do that, then all of his answers, uh, or all of his questions would be answered tongue in cheek. I say that, <clears throat> but anywho, uh, listen to what he has to say. Now let's go to another clip. Uh, let's pull up this one here where he's talking about, uh, yes, he knows some of the young earth, ex uh, explanations, but, um, here's his, his response 
to um, what they've said and, and how we should approach the text. My point that I'm trying to raise here is that that goes beyond the text. Uh, a, a global migratory instinct, universal hibernation, you know, all of this requires us to start stacking up more and more miracles. And if you don't have those miracles, you need some other kind of miracle to explain how do eight people for more than a year care for all the animals of the entire world. And what I'm trying to help us see is not, I'm not trying to make fun of this view or make someone feel like they're being uh, mocked or something like that. It's not my intention. What I'm trying to help us feel is to reduce the sense that this is the only way you can read this text and that this is the natural reading. Because if you start thinking it through, it seems a little less natural the more you think about it. Okay, so it seems a little less natural the more you think about it is his second argument, basically. Think through the logistics. Seems impossible, doesn't it? Therefore, the natural reading is what seems more possible with man. <laughs> oh boy, I'm really phrasing that in terms he wouldn't like. But there it is. All right, so um, my response, thinking through this, consider the resurrection of Jesus, how miraculous that is. And what if we were to hone on on the things that we just don't know for sure how they happened when it comes to the resurrection? For instance, when Jesus died, what happened to his blood that was still in his body, in his organs? Was there coagulation happening? He was dead for three days. Was that going on? And when he resurrected, is there still some form of blood in his body? And if so, how does that happen from going from a coagulated state with the heart not beating anymore to being fully functioning again? And if there is no blood, what happened to his blood? How could blood just be gone from his body? Because it's the same body. It's in a glorified state, but it's the same body. So where did the blood go? And if you say there is no blood because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he still had flesh though, didn't he? Uh, didn't Thomas feel his flesh? So how did that work? How did Jesus show up into a room? How did, how did he appear in a room with, when the door was locked? if he had a true, real body, if he still does even. How does that work? Well, if you don't know how, then you just have to start inserting miracle upon miracle. And after a while, yeah, the spiritual resurrection view starts to make more sense, doesn't it? See where this kind of reasoning can go? Now, of course, this is not a... The, the flood issue is not of the same importance as the resurrection. But I use that as an illustration because when it comes to that gospel issue, we don't have a problem saying, yeah, I don't know exactly how, but this is what I do know because the text tells me. Why can't we have that view consistently throughout Scripture, even when it comes to stuff that we would consider secondary? Now, if you're going to do that, uh, be ready for some fights because you know, you'll be branded as a fundamentalist and yada, yada, yada. But, but my whole point is the lack of how does not discredit reality. Reality is reality regardless of if we know how reality is, how it came to be. Reality is reality, and the lack of how does not decredit, discredit it. So uh, I would add, too, if I could add one more thing. Think of all the logistics that would still need to be explained, even if the flood wasn't global. 
because it's almost like this is being presented by Gavin in a in such a way as like, well, look, if you believe that there was a true global flood, there are so many logistics you wouldn't be able to figure out. But then he comes along and says, I believe that the flood was less than global, yet it was still absolutely massive. So it's almost like he's saying, you've got all of your problems and I only have 90% of your problems. Well, that's still a lot of problems to, to try to have to explain when it comes to the how. And you still have to come up with answers as to how all the animals that they had on there got on there and how they fed all of them, and how they took care of all of them. You still have to explain that. You still have a lot of issues when it comes to the logistics, when it comes to uh, figuring all those things out, okay? Now, granted, you don't have as many problems as you do, scientifically speaking or logistically speaking, as the global flood person like me does, but you still got a lot of problems that are still very difficult, and there will be a lot of overlap in the way that you answer those with the way global flood people will answer those, okay? And so... I do think that argument is really, really silly. I'm not going to spend any more time on it, his second reason. Um, to me, it just shows uh, a lack of a lack of just accepting reality, if I could just put it that bluntly. Well, I want to finish here with uh, one more clip from Gavin. This is toward the end of the video. Um, uh, a shorter clip here that I'll play for us, and then uh, I'll finish up with a few comments after that. At the very least, allowing for a local flood should not be written off as a liberalism or as just not taking the Bible seriously, as so often happens. For me personally, you know, I, just to speak personally, I'm, I'm not just a total theology nerd who's, in, who's uh, I mean, I love theology, but I think about these things at a pastoral and personal level. I've been through my, my time of working through, how do I think this through? I know a lot of others have as well. For me personally, Adhering to a local flood, as what I think is much more likely, is my best effort to submit to the text and what I think it's intending to convey in its own context. Reading the Bible responsibly and well as an ancient document that is true, but using ancient language and an ancient sphere of reference. Okay. All right. Um, how do you say that a person is wrong about his own self-analysis? <laughs> I, I I mean, I hate to do this because it's like he says something like that and I can't really fairly say, no, you're wrong about the way you're analyzing yourself. Is he really coming at this or any local flood person really coming at this from trying to understand what the original author was saying in the original language? I can't see it. I just absolutely can't see it. I mean, I, I don't want to call anybody a liar or anything like that, but at the same time, uh, I, I don't see how that could be the case. And, and I, and I don't think he's lying. Okay. I need to make that clear. I don't believe he's lying. I think he's just maybe a little deceived and maybe I should just leave it at that. Um, to me, very clearly you've got human reasoning at play here that is getting in the way of seeing what God has described as our reality. Okay, I'll leave it at that. This video has been long enough. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, there will be more, uh, a lot more coming out this, this year from Do Theology. We um, teased a few months ago this idea of a media network that's coming out, a podcast network. Stay tuned. We're still working on it. We're working on it. Very exciting announcements are going to be coming up. So don't 
uh, tune out. Don't forget about us. Keep listening to hear uh, what we have in store. Until then, we're going to keep working through the chart. Ken is doing chartology. He's working through that, and I will continue to do some interviews and episodes about theological topics like this one. So thanks so much for joining me today. May the Lord bless you. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out at show at dotheology.com, show at dotheology.com, where you can find us, the podcast. You can find me on, on Twitter. Uh, you can reach us on the podcast on Facebook. Let us know what you think, and uh, we'll respond accordingly. All right? Again, thanks for listening. The Lord bless you.